Hello and welcome back to episode 2 of the Sport at Dal podcast. I'm actually recording this part at a later date. I had episode 2 done and dusted ready to go, um, but I just had to come back and say a few words. Quite simply, thanks a million to everyone who has listened, liked, shared and messaged me. It has been unreal. I did not expect that much feedback from everyone. It's been absolutely class, so thanks a million. Again, even a, a like or a share, most positive thing or most beneficial thing you can probably do is just tell someone about it because I know myself that's how I hear about podcasts, literally through word of mouth. It's a funny concept because you know podcasts are so new, but the way of spreading them is still kind of so old school. Most people are just talking about what podcasts are listening to. Um, so yeah, any of that, hugely appreciative. The best thing I think over the last week or so has been people messaging me saying like, that's a great idea. What if you do this or you could talk about this? And that's exactly what I want. I want people to give me ideas. I'm not here to just tell you all the facts and say this is it and this is that. I want people to interact and maybe give me ideas. I've got a good few topics based on people's feedback already. Um, and if you give me a topic that I'm going to talk about, you'll definitely get a shout out. Fact. Um, but overall, thanks a million to everyone who has given any sort of feedback, good or bad. Um, just a kind of bit about the podcast and how it started and the plan going forward. Just because a few people were asking me um, in person. The plan, first of all, is to release an episode every 10 to 14 days. So keep it consistent enough. There is a good bit of work in an episode, although it might not seem like it sometimes. Um, between researching, getting an idea, first of all, researching it for a couple hours. It could be over maybe you know a couple of days, thinking about what I'm going to talk about, etc. And then writing it all down, compiling the information and then recording and editing. So hopefully it will be every 10 to 14 days. Um, secondly, the idea I suppose came from talking shite at home couple of lads in a room talking about sport ideas like what is harder a 147 or a hole in one and trying to discuss discuss or break down you know the differences or what sport is easiest to become professional in and we agreed or we came to the idea that it was darts and why it was darts and why another sport could be easier it could be lucky something like that and then from that it kind of snowballed and i'm thinking you know i want to figure out other random sports questions or other random sports topics and i planned to make uh, myself and a couple other lads planned to make a podcast about a year ago but it just fell through between everything and i still had the idea in my head and had so for a couple of months and then eventually i said i better go do this because if i don't i'll be ticking myself um, I work in a school and we have serious editing and microphone equipment so it just kind of all fell together and I said I'm going to give this a go so that's the kind of idea um, hopefully going forward people continue to enjoy it and continue to send feedback um, so yeah here's episode 2 thanks a million everyone the possibilities of options for this one was just enormous Today we're going to be talking about conspiracy theories in sport. There is a huge amount of conspiracy theories that we could have focused on. We are going to 
name a couple of honorable mentions and then we're going to do a deep dive into one particular theory. So first we need to understand what a theory is. And being a science teacher, I drill this into my students all the time. A theory is something that has a lot of evidence and is widely regarded as being true, but can't be proven. A conspiracy theory, on the other hand, is usually organized and mainly by a powerful organization where they have some sinister plan that causes detriment to another organization or group of people. It's usually political and involves some sort of treason or betrayal. If we think of different types of conspiracy theories, you know, very popular ones, the moon landing, 9-11, Diana's death, JFK, they have a huge amount of evidence indicating that they would they were done to gain some sort of influential power or political power or financial gain and before we start our deep dive into this topic we need to distinguish between a conspiracy theory and a scandal so a scandal is something i intend to do a podcast on or numerous sports scandals you know lance armstrong or the blood subs in rugby these have been proven you know people have been um, convicted of this but a conspiracy theory it has not been solved so that's the that's going to be the distinguishing factor between our scandal and our conspiracy theory so i think a good place to start regarding conspiracy theories is about the origin story or um a conspiracy around the origin story i suppose and again i'm quoting blind boy because some of his stuff is really, really interesting and I thought this actually applies to this podcast. So the origin idea of conspiracy theories is around the technological advancement of soap. So I know that might sound like, how the hell is that in any way related to sports conspiracy theories? But bear with me. So how soap was created or how soap was discovered was... Um, tribes, tribes that used to cook meat, okay, over um, wood ash, a wood ash fire. So they would cook meat and the fat from the animals would fall onto the pit. And if it was beside a river, it would flow into the water. And these three things combined essentially made an alkaline substance and kill bacteria. Okay, so this was the first soap invented. Um, some people didn't know it, some people didn't realize it, but when they did, it was an unbelievable technological advancement. This changed many tribes, genetically um, and physically. And where the conspiracy stems from, from this, is the fact that some tribes figured this out and some did not. So obviously the tribes that figured this out were going to be you know, at, at a bigger advantage they're going to have a higher probability of surviving. And, you know, back in the day, that was the aim to survive. So a lot more of them tribes are going to survive. They're going to pass on knowledge. They're going to pass on um, their genes to help create a better tribe. And the tribes that didn't figure it out were obviously at a loss. These tribes did not have the protection. They did not have the protection of the soap that would kill bacteria. They would allow them to live longer 
again, to pass down knowledge, to pass on genes. So back in the day, tribes are obviously against each other. Societies and the idea of, you know, more information creating a better society was not around. It was all every man for himself or every tribe for themselves. Because usually you allow another, another tribe into your tribe, you know, they steal or rob because that's probably what happened to them. So it was all very much against each other. So therefore, the tribes that had the soap were in direct competition with the tribes that did not have the soap. And one of the theory goes, or how the theory goes, is that the non-soap tribe could view the soap tribe and look at them as, you know, superiors. And why are they superior? And there's some reason that they are better than us. There's some reason why their teeth are cleaner. There's some reason why they don't have as many deaths in infants. There's some reason why they're living longer and there's actually old people in them tribes. Um, so this was obviously a massive issue or a massive concern for that tribe, the non-soap tribe, because if they're in direct competition and they see a superior tribe, they're going to be worried. So, so the conspiracy goes that the non-soap tribe would come up with ideas as to how these people are becoming better than them or what they're doing to, to become better. And one of the, I suppose, theories was that they might be stealing their babies. So the non-soap tribe, a lot of their babies are dying and they're wondering why are they dying? And then they see the other tribe and they see, well, they have loads of babies and none of them are dying. They could be ours. And they also might be seeing some particular rituals like obviously you have to make soap and when one tribe realized this is how you make it they want to repeat that so non-soap tribe might be looking at the soap tribe and be thinking hold on they're they're burning some animal or they're cooking an animal they're mixing it with the wood ash and they're putting water what sort of ritual is this a lot of these conspiracies and i suppose any conspiracy theory is developed around a lack of information only parts of the information non-soap tribe are looking in they are looking at what they see they're seeing more babies they're seeing healthier people they're seeing rituals and they're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together along with their own anxiety around it and i suppose in a lot of conspiracy theories people have anxiety they are worried about why someone or why someone or some corporation are doing this particular thing and as i said at the start it's usually to do with some corporation or higher power getting more power or oppressing other people and i know that sounds very you know philosophical for a sports podcast but i suppose this is one of the ideas around how conspiracy theories might be created and i suppose it gives us a good understanding around conspiracy theories if we are conspiring around a particular thing are we anxious around it are we worried about that particular um, group or organization doing something that might affect us so I'm going to do three honorable mentions, as I said. Two of them are to do with the NBA, and the final one is going to be on the Premier League. We probably have heard about them before. Um, some of them are very, very interesting. Funny enough, every one of them has some sort of financial implication. So again, we can use our conspiracy theory heads on that regarding, you know, um, a higher organization, etc. But we'll have a look. They're very interesting. So the first one, some people might have heard about before mainly because of the documentary um what is it called again the, the last dance sorry 
uh, Michael Jordan's documentary, The Last Dance. So in that documentary, you see how he retires. Or if you watch Space Jam, um, you see that he retires from the NBA. Um, in 1993, he just won three consecutive championships. So he was like in the pinnacle of his career. Um, he retired. He announced very dramatically, and a lot of people did not expect it, that he was going to retire from the NBA, that he was done with basketball. This was a shock to a lot of people, obviously. The main reason that he says he retires is because he lost motivation, that he was at the pinnacle, he was at the peak, nothing challenged him anymore. And I could see how that could be truthful because in the documentary, he's portrayed as you know, a very competitive person, as we're gonna find out, extremely competitive. So if the competition has gone out of something, maybe the joy has gone out. That's what he said. But a lot of people have looked at it other ways and talked about some of the conspiracy theories as to why he may be possibly suspended or any other reasons why he may have left. So we start with one that I suppose could have a bit of truth. It was that his father, who had recently been killed, as you will see on the documentary, he was um, brutally killed. Obviously, this would have a massive effect on Jordan, a massive effect on anyone. He said that his dad was a massive baseball fan. And as we know, when Jordan retired, he went and played baseball. He actually did not play a very high level. He didn't really become successful at it. He played like league one or championship standard of baseball. He wasn't playing in the NBL. But people think that he did this because his father was a massive baseball fan. And his father has been on record before saying, I wish you never played basketball and I wish you were a baseball player. So maybe there was some, you know, nostalgic part from that wanted to go and play baseball because of his father. That is very probable. Um, the main conspiracy a lot of people feel is believable and is still true is that he was suspended. That he was suspended from the league because he had massive gambling problems. If you watch the documentary, you can see that he clearly has a gambling addiction. He would bet on anything and he has said like he's played, I don't know, 10k a hole of golf, um, that he loves to have some wager on the line. Now, some people just put this down to his competitive streak, but it's quite simply a gambling addiction. He used to go, you know, to places like Vegas and, you know, big casino cities before games and spend hundreds of thousands, blow the lot. This was something that was you know, associated with Jordan. You've seen on the documentary that he would literally bet on throwing a coin against the wall. Who could get the coin closest to the wall won the money. So this was clearly an issue. And Jordan at the time obviously was the most notable player in the NBA, if not the world. He was a superstar. Like When I was younger, I didn't know any basketball players, only Michael Jordan. You know, and you ask, you know, a granny down the East Mayo, she'll tell you Michael Jordan. She's not going to tell you Steph Curry, although he's massive now. Michael Jordan is still the name that's on people's tongues and was at the time. So this idea that he was bringing negative press to the NBA kind of blew out proportion. And a lot of people looked into the, the leaving statement or his retirement statement. And one of the quotes was something like, if Stern lets me back in the league, I'll come back and play. And Stern was the commissioner of the NBA at the time. 
he actually features in both our conspiracies which is ironic enough um, and a lot of people you know took this out of context context um, it's kind of more like if Stern would have me back but a lot of people said oh well he said if Stern lets me back that means that Stern kicked him out um, there's no reason why they shouldn't or couldn't have given him a fine um, they've probably buried a lot he actually was in, in a lot of trouble with a lot of you know mafias or mobsters that owed them money but again he had millions so he had no reason to owe people money I'm sure there's a lot more to it but I can kind of say I don't know I'm going to go for a debunked on this one I think that he probably left due to lack of motivation or maybe I'm going to go with the dad the dad idea right keep positive keep his name clean even though he was a bit of a messer <laughs> um, as we know he did come back to the NBA he was massively important for it as we'll talk about in the next one you know image and the players in a particular league have such an impact on finance and, and viewership etc so the second one was about the 1985 draft the 1985 draft was massive for the NBA this was this is before Jordan so Jordan was just a rookie so they needed a massive star the NBA back in the 80s was not like it was now you know you see the premiership you see the NBA NBL all these major leagues they're they're pretty clean or at least they're clean at the surface they need to be anything that is negative will you know plummet viewership or plummet um, stocks etc so at the time NBA was riddled with alcoholics, drugs, and a lot of other a lot of other dodgy stuff. So it didn't have a great image, and it needed a kind of revamp. And that revamp was in Patrick Ewing. So Patrick Ewing, he was described as the total package at the time. He was going to be, although Jordan wasn't there yet, he was going to be the next Jordan. Or the, he was going to be the, the new face, the new image of the NBA that was going to bring it back to life. So this compiled with Stern, right? We talked about Stern before, he's the commissioner. It was his first season in the NBA, the first time he was a commissioner in the NBA. And people think that he needed to make a statement, or needed to make an impact. Um, and what he did, he changed the way the draft was laid out. The draft, again, very brief description is, the worst team the previous year gets the first pick at all the new players. Um, previously the bottom two teams would have the first pick okay they'd have a 50 50 chance um, but Stern came in and he changed that he changed the fact that two teams had the option and he changed it to seven teams he changed it to seven teams have a 14.3 percent chance at getting the first picks um, that was massive change it was it brought I suppose a bit of excitement back to the NBA that you know smaller teams well not smaller teams technically bigger teams could get bigger players that was that would obviously be beneficial for teams like the new york knicks so the new york knicks were one of the biggest franchises in the world but they weren't doing very well it would be like we'll say united now okay and you have two options imagine what's going to make more money for a league Ronaldo coming back to United or Ronaldo going to Norwich? You know, 
one of the worst teams in the league versus, okay, I was going to say one of the best teams, but United, one of the biggest franchises in the league. Obviously, for the Premier League, they would want Ronaldo to go to United. So, what do you know? The New York Knicks were picked out of the draft as the first pick, and Patrick Ewing went there. Now, what was also peculiar about this draft was that it was televised. It was actually the first time the draft was televised. That added a lot of pressure to it. So a lot of people were literally watching with close eyes on what happened. The second thing he did was change the way the draft is done. So usually you have like, you know, if you look at the FA Cup draw, you have small balls in you know a circular container. You kind of mix the balls around, you pick out the team. He changed it to envelopes, which is kind of strange. Seven large envelopes were in a circular container and he picked them out. Now, the conspiracy is obviously that it was fixed, that the New York Knicks were planning to get Ewing because it would revitalize the whole NBA and the franchise. Some of the theories were that, the first of all, the envelope was bent, that they could see a bend in the envelope, but you can't really see that um, on the video. Uh, the second one, I suppose, is the one that a lot of people again theorize because well you can't really prove it you can't see it through a screen but it's an explanation again we talked about limited information was that one of the envelopes was in a freezer that the patrick ewing oh, sorry the new york knicks envelope was placed in a freezer that it would be easy to identify by whoever was picking it out and um, now two lads on youtube looked at this conspiracy and they got the exact same envelopes they left it in for 24 hours and they couldn't tell because solids and liquids kind of cool differently so if it was a liquid it would be a lot easier but because it was a solid it didn't change that much physically so again this is kind of debunked other people had stuff like weighted envelope x-ray glasses these are just kind of conspiracies that are just thrown out there explanations without any backing now ironic enough the next day the knicks had thousands of requests for season tickets um, and stern went on about how a lot of people were talking about the lottery rather than the drugs or the unauthorized franchise moves or anything negative that's what he said he wanted people to be focusing about or on the positive parts of the nba not all the negative stuff that was overwhelming the media in terms of what do I think? It's hard to know. I don't think it was fixed because, well, why would you televise it? If it's the first year that you're doing it and you want to fix it, well, don't televise it. Um, maybe it would actually make more people weary if it wasn't televised and the Knicks got it. I don't know. It's hard to know. A lot of people talked about how there was a lot of nervousness around the draft that year but again that's because it's the first time it's televised also people on both sides people like opposing teams managers that could have got Ewing some of them said of course they were destined to get it etc but then the funny thing is other managers who were opposing it says no there was nothing wrong it's all good um, so I don't know I don't think so personally the final one that I'm going to talk about is about the Premier League. And I enjoyed this one because I kind of, kind of remember it. 
Um, I would have been, what, 10 at the time. Um, so this is between Arsenal and Spurs, the Lasagna Gate. So 6th of May, 2006, Spurs are about to get into a Champions League spot. If they win at West Ham, they send Arsenal to the Europa League. Now, there's a couple of games left in the season. This is not the defining one. Um, what happened was, the day or the night of the Spurs-West Ham game, everyone started to feel sick. They had a lasagna at the hotel, the Marriott Hotel. And it's ironic because I was watching the Premier League the weekend and I seen an advertisement on the advertisement board, Marriott Hotel. Um, they had pre-match food, which led to a poisoning, well, you know, so-called food poisoning outbreak. And you could see the players that were visibly tired. During the night, the players woke up, they didn't get any sleep, they started complaining of stomach bugs, um, you know, dehydrated, diarrhea. And you could see that the next day. Michael Carrick came off, I don't know, was it before half time or just after half time? And like he was practically holding his stomach. I think he was actually was holding his stomach as he was walking off. These people or these players were shattered. They were in no state to play a match. And there was like nine or ten of the first team squad that were affected by this. And I suppose, and when you see something like this, especially because it was all in London, Spurs, Arsenal, and West Ham. The theory was that, you know, the chef or whoever is in charge of the food at the Marriott Hotel could easily be an Arsenal fan. Now, there has been an investigation after it, right? The police did a full-blown um, investigation and they could not figure out or they could not point a finger at anyone doing anything wrong. So the hotel obviously denied doing any wrongdoing because they don't want their name dragged through the dirt. You know, they, I imagine that Spurs definitely would not go back there. I don't know if they have. I'd love to know where they stay now. Definitely not the Marriott. Um, but the police have done an investigation and they have not found anything wrong. I would love to think this is true. It's ironic that this has happened the day before. I've never heard of this happening since. Um, so just because I, I said that the other two aren't true, I'm going to go, yeah, I think the chef did something dodgy because I've never heard of this before. Um, maybe teams have their own food now or have their own chef. Maybe it was a good thing. But when you think about getting into the Champions League and not, it would have huge financial implications. Arsenal are just coming off a couple of years later off the Invincibles. They don't make the Champions League. They've paid massive wages um, to players. They have massive, massive sponsorship deals. Um, it's going to be a lot harder on Arsenal than it is for Spurs. Spurs weren't doing great. They hadn't been Champions League in a, in a couple of years. So it would have been obviously huge for them. It would have been great as a club. But it would have been a lot more detrimental to Arsenal not making it than it would be positive to Spurs making it. I'm going to go through. <laughs> um, if you are the chef on that day and you want to defend yourself come talk to me but i am going to bash you i'm going to say that you set up spurs for failure we're going to do a deep dive into the 10 million pound horse shergar the story of shergar is truly unbelievable it not only captivated the whole nation but it also has links to religion war gangsters and all in the middle of a recession 
The more you look into the story, the deeper you look into the story, you realize the impact it had on not only the people that were involved directly, but also the nation and the economy. It's hard to know where to start with this story because there's so much going on. I think it's better to understand what Ireland in the 80s was like at the time to paint a picture. So, middle of the 80s, Ireland was in the middle of a recession. There was around 16% unemployment and immigration was on the rise consistently. I suppose the main zeitgeist of that time was probably, obviously, the Troubles between Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland, Catholics and Protestants. At the time, there was hunger strikes going on. Bobby Sands died, um, one of the people who took part in the hunger strikes. And soon after the particular incident that we're going to talk about happened, there was a fire in Artane that killed 48 people and injured nearly 200 people. So you could say that Ireland was in ruins. It wasn't a great place to be. There was conflict, war, recession, not a good place. The one shining light at that time was horse racing. Horse racing was actually on the rise. Horse racing was one of the most productive and profitable businesses or ventures to be in at the time. It also provided a massive amount of employment in terms of people working in studs, jockeys, trainers, think of all the people associated with these big massive organizations, accountants, etc. So it was the backbone of the Irish economy at the time. Maybe that might be a stretch saying that, but it was a significant part of Ireland's wealth. The mid 80s also saw some of the best sires in the world come out of Ireland. You had Sadler's Wells, who was one of the most prolific producers of major winners. You had Surly on, that was around the mid 80s as well. Um, media success, and at one time was a leading sire in Great Britain and Ireland. That was more to the late 80s. But the quality of horses was there. There was no doubt about that. As famous as these horses are, they probably aren't as famous as Shergar for a number of reasons. One, Shergar was an unbelievable horse. It wasn't the fact that, as we know, Shergar was stolen. It was more the fact that Shergar was phenomenal. In 1981, Shergar practically wiped the floor. He won all the major races. The Epsom Derby, Irish Derby, King George, Queen Elizabeth, these it's essentially winning the treble and the World Cup in the same year. And obviously that year he was named European Horse of the Year, 1981. So he was the best horse in Europe. And he was known as one of the great, greatest race horses of all time at the time. Usually it's, you know, 10 or 15 years after. But at the time, they realized this is something special. I suppose he won the Epsom Derby by 10 lengths, and that is still the record of the longest win or the largest win in that race. So people knew that he was something special. So in horse racing, if you are an unbelievable horse, you will nearly make more money from being a sire than actually racing. So at the end of the 1981 season, literally the best season you could have practically, Shergar was retired to Stud. So again, I presume most people know this, but Stud is 
you are going to service horses. You are going to give your sperm for money and impregnate horses to hopefully produce the best possible horse you can. And although it's kind of scientific, there is, you know, their fair share of failures in it. So it's not guaranteed that you're going to be a successful sire, even if you have been a successful racehorse. So Shergar was retired to Ballymany Stud. This was in County Kildare, and I suppose the location of that is significant in the whole story. Um, like Shergar coming to Newbridge was... <laughs> There was a parade for Shergar, a parade to mark their arrival, because everyone was excited about, as I said, the prosperity that Shergar might bring. Between, obviously, the jobs, the tourism, and the stud fees itself. If the stud grows, the area grows. So with the retirement, Aga Khan, who was the owner and breeder, who we will, we will talk about very shortly, he sold 40 shares of the horse quarter of a million each he gave investors four years to pay it off so they didn't have to have quarter of a million up front he bought six of the shares himself so he sold the other 34 so he was still kind of the main owner but obviously the ownership was disseminated between essentially 35 people himself and 34 others to most people this seemed like a no-brainer investment you know you had quarter of a million investment over four years and he could cover you know 50 60 folds or folds um mares a year and you know at the time it'll be about 60 to eighty thousand pounds per cover so if you do the math on that it's coming out at around three to four million a year so shergar can produce easily three to four million a year and that also could rise if the folds produce or the folds that are produced become good racehorses that could go up to maybe a hundred thousand pounds you're looking at three to four million every year for a huge number of years could be 10 15 20 years so you'd have your money made back in a couple of years and then it's all profit you're making thousands of years from an initial investment so i put the like seventy thousand average seventy thousand cover chart into an inflation calculator and that would come out as nearly quarter of a million in 2022 70,000 would be worth um quarter of a million so it was a massive stud fee one of the biggest at the times and rightly so it was the number one horse at the time so it's a great investment for everyone the owner aga khan he still has six shares so he's still going to make money but he also has got paid for 34 so regardless what happens, he's in the money. Obviously, he doesn't want anything to happen because he wants this to keep churning out money, keep churning out folds and high quality folds at that. A small bit about Aga Khan himself. When I looked up Aga Khan, I didn't realize what I was going to find. This fella is essentially a leader of a, a branch of Islam. So he... Is I won't say a pope, but he is like a pope figure to millions of people. He claims direct lineage to the Prophet Muhammad from Islam. He claims his lineage to Muhammad from Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, Ali. I just thought that was amazing. I thought that was insane. 
that, you know, I thought he was one of these sheiks, one of these massive wealthy sheiks that buys race horses, that maybe this was an early sheik investment because nowadays you see loads of them. But when I clicked in and, <laughs> and did a research, I didn't think I was going to find that this fella is a major religious figure. I suppose that also connects to our conspiracy theory or a couple of the theories that were proposed due to Shergar being stolen. And 10 minutes into talking about Shergar, it's probably a good time to just focus on what happened. And then we can go into the detail about exactly what happened on the days and nights after and the conspiracy theory surrounding it. As I've mentioned previously, and as a lot of people might know, Shergar was stolen from that stud in Ballymanning. 1981, 8th of February, Jim Fitzgerald, who was the trainer of Shergar, was chilling out in the house with his family when six mass gang members busted in the door, all armed, and demanded that Jim take them to Shergar. It was a quick and swift operation. Two of them stayed with the family and kept them hostages. The other six brought Jim to the stable, loaded the horse, got him in the back of the van. Other two boys hopped in, drove off and left him in the middle of nowhere. Before they did that, they gave him a code name and they said that they would call with the code name. So they were looking for ransom. This wasn't to, you know, bring Shergar show jumping. This was to sell Shergar back to his investors. So Shergar was stolen. We have the story. One of the most ridiculous things that had ever happened. People would never think of it. Stealing a horse. Keeping a man hostage and then selling the horse back as ransom. So what happened next? Well, Jim eventually made his way home. Back through the darkness. Back to his house. And the first thing he did was not ring the police or cops. He rang Shergar's vet, Stan Cosgrove. So Stan Cosgrove was actually one of the investors who has a significant part in the story also. He rang Stan. Stan then continued to ring his mate who rang the local TD. I don't know the reasoning behind this, but it's a funny sequence of events when you look back. It wasn't until about eight hours later that the police were contacted after the horse was taken. And eight hours is a very long time in a missing missing persons case or a missing horse case. As I said before, the stud was based in Kildare. So Kildare, I suppose, is pretty central to Ireland in terms of being able to get around. You can go a lot of places in eight hours from Kildare. If you go quickly to Dublin, you can get across on the ferry. You could go to the other side. You could go to literally any part of Ireland in eight hours. In four hours, you get to any part of Ireland. In eight hours, you could be in a different country very easily. What was significant also about the kidnapping was the time of the year. So we said it was the 8th of February. But what was significant about that 8th of February is that there was sales on. So those horse sales on in Goffs. Goffs would probably be the biggest horse sales in Ireland. And that lined up perfectly because there was loads of people with horse trailers, horse boxes, going to and from Goffs, which was very close to Ballymany Stud. So people weren't on the lookout. 
when they were doing a report about did you see a horse box not many people would have seen anything anything out of the ordinary so it wouldn't be on, you wouldn't be on high alert so even if you did leave the country there could have been numerous horse boxes with numerous horses on the ferry and after Shergar was officially missing two things happened one was that the whole nation went into high alert and the guards proceeded to look in nearly every stable in Ireland in hope that they might find Shergar. And the second thing that happened was that all the theories started. A lot of the initial theories were connected to Aga Khan, the owner. As he was of huge wealth and power, people started to make links and they said, must have something to do with him. One of the theories was that the Mafia stole it from Aga Khan because of a deal that went wrong. And Aga Khan would probably be used to bribes and threats because of his wealth. So he wasn't phased. Another was that an Arab horse breeder stole him and was going to use him for breeding. Okay, which would probably be... Maybe in that time might be different, but now it would be a bit useless because... You know, you pay for your pedigree, you pay for what is on the card so you can't put down Shergar you have to put down something else I suppose you could just use the genetics and and say it's something else but again very unlikely and the third one was that Gaddafi who was in power in Libya at the time had stolen and stolen him and taken him to Libya don't really know what that one is about and how it connects to Aga Khan but a lot of people thought that for some reason so as I said, the whole nation was gripped. The whole nation was on high alert for Shergar. And then the phone call started coming. So initially, they got a phone call the next day. And it was saying that they were requested a particular BBC reporter. That they would only work with him. That they wanted him to come over to Ireland and negotiate. There was a series of calls back and forth, etc, etc. But it wasn't until the second day that the code name which was King Neptune was used so they realized this is the actual kidnapper kidnappers because that was the code name that was given to Jim when he was abducted so now they were in contact with the real kidnappers their demands were simple <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a documentary the demands were simple 2 million they wanted 2 million in ransom and they would safely return Sherga and um, at the end, I will kind of look over the major mistakes that the kidnappers made. But one of them, the first one, was that they thought Aga Khan had all the shares, that he could make the final decision. But as I said, he had recently just sold the shares. So this wasn't just a simple decision. Yeah, OK, I'll pay two million or I won't. You had 35 different people trying to come to a consensus about what they should do. So it was very, very difficult. Stan Cosgrove, who I mentioned earlier, was one of the investors. He was also the vet of Shergar. He had invested 250000 Well, he was going to over four years. And he was looking like, or he thought it looked like, that this could be all for nothing. So he was desperate. He was just a normal vet. He wasn't like one of these sheiks or mad, wealthy horse trainers. He wanted this as an investment, obviously really interested in horses, but he wanted it as a retirement fund, we'll say. 
So he was interlinked into the investigation heavily. One of the first engagements with the gang was through Stan. The gang said that they wanted a person to collect an envelope at the Crofton Hotel. And they had to ask for Johnny Logan at the front desk. So Stan decided, I'll go. I'll ask for Johnny Logan and I'll get some sort of envelope. And they wanted evidence. So the investors were looking for evidence of proof that Sherker was still alive and healthy because stallions are, are very powerful animals. This wasn't like robbing a dog and keeping him in a, in a pen. They had to load, successfully load and unload and maintain this animal, which was very difficult for a person who was inexperienced. So this played into the investors' minds that if these people aren't horse people, we'll say that this horse is in big danger and mightn't be alive and well. So the main thing they wanted was proof that he was alive. So... Stan goes to the hotel, looks for an envelope. The woman at the desk says she has no idea what he's talking about. And as soon as he gets back, they get a phone call. And the member they were talking to, the member of the gang that they were talking to, was irate. He said that he could see from afar that the place was absolutely riddled with guards. And if this happened again, Shergar would not be alive. So this was their first kind of threat to say... If this doesn't go to plan, Shergar is gone. The phone calls continued back and over, back and over. A lot of them were unreported, which was also sinister enough. Sergeant Murphy, who was on the case, at one point said they had no leads. And at that time, they were conversing consistently with the gang. The thing about the negotiations was Aga Khan said that he would never sell. He had been in this position position many times and he was not going to change now. So they were never ever going to pay the money. The problem was people like Stan, normal investors, were desperate. So they asked for two million, which was which was only a fraction of what Shergar was worth at the time. As I said, they paid 10 million or the equivalent to 10 million in shares. So Shergar was valued at 10 million. They were looking for two million. But the problem wasn't the money. The problem was getting Shergar back in good health. That was the main issue. That issue continued on until day four. Four days after Shergar was kidnapped, the gang, after negotiating for a couple of days, were fed up and realized they weren't getting any money and they cut off any communication with Aga Khan or Shergar's people. The main issue, as I said, was the health and the shareholders were not willing to pay or were never willing to pay really, but definitely not willing to pay unless they had 100% proof that he was alive. They had received one picture before of the head of Shergar, um, but it didn't tell anything. It was just a face. The horse could have been lying down, could have been injured, could have even been dead. So they were not accepting this as probable proof. So as far as the gang were concerned, and as far as a lot of the investors were concerned, that was it. After four days, four days prior, they had this money-making machine. Everything was rosy. Four days later, it's gone without a trace. There was obviously numerous phone calls to the guards all the time, but false cases. 
uh, I suppose, nor normal everyday people didn't know the difference between different horses. If you met a horse trainer, they would know Shergar straight away. As far as I know, Shergar had like, did he have a funny eye or something like that? I remember reading that Jim described that Shergar had a funny eye that you could definitely pick him out of a crowd. But again, that's to the trained or experienced eye, pardon the pun. One of the people that didn't definitely didn't give up the fight was Stan Cosgrove, the vet. A lot of the people that had invested big money got their money back on insurance. They had particular insurance policies. A lot of them got it back. Some of them didn't need it back. They were already very wealthy. But Stan, as I said, was just a normal vet. Now, obviously, he was on good money, but 250000 is a lot. And his insurance would not pay out because there was no body. So they could not prove, or Stan couldn't prove that the horse was actually dead. At this point, most people assumed that the horse was dead. A lot of people assumed that it was dead before the four days were up. But we'll come back to that. Stan continued to search for the horse because even if he found the remains, he got his money back. So he traveled all over the country, kept investigating to make sure that he found the remains. And I suppose one of the tragedies in the story is that Stan eventually had to sell his farm, 120 acre farm, to pay off the investment. But it wasn't for long. He was obviously a very good vet and it was sought after. And he died only a couple of years ago and there was three million left in his will. So he obviously did all right. But at the time in the 1980s, he was desperate to get that money back. The search continued for years really with people like Stan and horse trainers, etc. It wasn't so much in the public eye through the guards and stuff like that, but it did continue. And as I said, we're gonna talk about the major mistakes that happened in the kidnapping. First major mistake I mentioned before was that they thought Aga Khan was the sole sh shareholder, and he wasn't. There was 35 people involved. He had six and there's 34 other shares. So it was a very complicated organization, especially if you want to come to a consensus on an agreement to pay big money for a horse that may be dead. The second thing was that there would be no heat from a stolen horse, that people wouldn't care that much, that it wouldn't be massive news that they could get away with it without having too much pressure or influence from the guards. But this wasn't the case. People cared so much. It was all over the news, world news, not just in Ireland. As I said, it, you know, gripped a nation, but it also gripped Europe because this was the European horse of the year. So they didn't think that this would go on the news. And they also didn't think that people would care about the horse as much, that they had normal everyday people out searching stables. So they're probably under pressure as well. After a couple of days, they realized they have a lot of heat here from the guards, from the news and from everyday people. That was probably the biggest mistake they made and also probably led to them becoming, I suppose, anxious and that might have led to some of the things that happened that Sean O'Callaghan informed us on. So although this is still a theory because we have not solved it, Sean O'Callaghan, who was an undercover member of the IRA, 
he was an informant for the guards and he was a member of the IRA. He came out in 1999 and he stated that this was the IRA, which was the Irish Republican Army, which was fighting against um, the Protestants and they needed money for arms. That was the reason. That's what Sean O'Callaghan said was the reason for the abduction of Sherry. Now, the IRA have never taken responsibility for the kidnapping of Shergar. And it's funny because during that time, the IRA have came out or did come out and said, we have done this or we did that to prove a point. But they never said that they stole Shergar. Although Sean O'Callaghan, who was heavily involved with the IRA at the time, says that there was a couple of people directly involved. He said that the people that were involved their main goal was to raise money for arms, to fight against the RUC, to fight against the North. They had to raise, I think it was two million a year to fund the IRA, which was again, massive money at the time. And this two million would fund it. They were hoping that they get paid out straight away. The horse is extremely valuable, but it didn't go to plan. He said that the horse got injured within 24 hours, that the horse had a injured leg and within a couple of days the horse was dead they had to shoot the horse because he was injured and obviously agitated and they weren't able to handle him and that was also a mistake they made they underestimated the power and the responsibility of managing this horse they just said or they just thought we'll load him up to the trailer we'll keep him wherever and it'll be sound whereas they realized hold on aga khan's not paying us Everyone actually is looking for this horse and the horse is going mad. So it was, it was all a farce, really. It all got messed up very quickly. They weren't able for it. The main organizers who were involved were Kevin Mallon. He was a senior men, member of the IRA at the time and known for stuff like this, known for ransoms. Um, Jerry Fitz, who fled to the US later on. And uh, Nikki Kyo, who is actually became a politician for Sinn Féin for nine years. So it's mad to think that some of these people actually just had normal careers after this. Um, as far as I know, Kevin uh, Mallon got arrested attempting to do uh, a ransom for someone else. So some of them did um, eventually get caught. They say that the most probable place of Shergar's remains are in North Leitrim. And, you know, you think North Leitrim is the most random spot to bury a, um, a horse but literally for that reason who the hell would go to North Leitrim no offence <laughs> to anyone from Leitrim at the time and still is the most or the least densely populated area in Ireland so there was a huge amount of IRA activity that took place in Leitrim so based on this they reckon that they brought them brought the horse from Kildare to Leitrim that night and kept them there and although it's a great story, really entertaining, it entails gangsters, ransom, firearms, wars, and it all happened in the 80s in a, a quiet Leitrim. Hard to believe. Great story to tell, great story to hear, but there's a tragedy in it, and that's the fact that one of the greatest racehorses of all time is probably buried in a ditch somewhere. You know, if you look at horses, unbelievable horses like Galileo, one of the best sires ever. It was nearly a million per cover at one stage for Galileo. They're on 
display. They're taxiderm, taxidermy, I think it is, or taxidermed. Essentially, they're stuffed. And you can go and see them in a, in a museum. There's statues of them. Whereas this unbelievable horse, European horse of the year, is lying in a ditch. At least we could get him back. At least they could have recovered the body. Okay, I know it would have been horrific, but at least you would have the horse in person. And at least Stan Cosgrove would have got paid out on his insurance. Not that he needed it in the end, but it would have helped him at the time. So it's a pity really that it ended that way so abruptly without a trace. There's still question marks over some of the phone calls that were made and maybe some of the deals that were proposed. And although we have a lot of information on it, there is still a lot that was shoved under the carpet. How much did they know about Shergar? How much did they know about his health and where he was? We still will never find out. Unless the IRA come out and give details, which if they haven't done now, they don't seem like they're going to do in the future. And that's it. Gone without a trace. I was just thinking about if you picked out some parts of this story and put it as tags, people would be like, what the fuck? Gaddafi, Galileo, the IRA, Protestants, ransom, kidnapping, informants, the BBC, Islam, Muhammad, money, guns, drugs, and then lovely Leitrim thrown in the middle. So it's a roller coaster of emotions, which unfortunately ends on a lull because we're left with no information. We're left high and dry. Shergar is still missing. We still have not found any remains of Shergar. And probably the worst thing in terms of a horse racing perspective is that Shergar will always be remembered for being kidnapped and not what he did on a racetrack. And that is that. Conspiracy theories. Again, as I said, there is a million and one conspiracy theories. And as I was recording this or as I was researching it, I've seen a new documentary on Netflix called Bad Sports. And it's about sports scandals and conspiracy theories. So you never know there could be a follow up on this. I could get revitalized by some of the stuff I see on that. But for now, take it ham and cheesy.